as Murdoch. Uh, I have a strong affinity with anyone born in Scotland. Raised in South Africa. And so, Nick, we are, as I said, greatly blessed to have you. We look forward to you unearthing the truth of God's word for us. And we are eagerly anticipating God blessing you as you preach. And so why don't you come and minister the word for us, brother? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. That's Covenant Grace Baptist Church, not Grace Covenant. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) But uh, we bring you greetings from Covenant Grace Baptist Church. And just to say thank you so much for holding this conference. I'm sure you've all felt the restrictions of COVID and isn't it wonderful to be able to get back together again? Uh, so we just, uh, I just want to spend, uh, just give a, a special thank you to Matt, to the staff here, to the elders of, of uh, Riverbend, and just thank you uh, for putting this on for us. This is amazing. So I have the privilege of kicking off the conference on the topic of In Christ Alone. Let me start with a stupid question. Is it biblical to have a conference on this topic? Told you it was a stupid question. We are imitating Paul uh, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was all about Christ and so are we. Christ alone. Now, Solus Christus. By Christ alone is one of the five solas of the Reformation. I'm sure you've heard of the five solas from Matt and others. But it's wonderful to note how all five solas are wrapped around the centrality of Christ. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority for all we do and believe. But who is the Bible all about from beginning to end? Jesus Christ and His work for us. Sola fide, we are saved by faith alone, by faith and not by works. Who is our faith in? In Christ alone. Sola gratia, we are saved not because we deserve it, but but because of God's grace. And how does God's grace come to us? In the person of Christ. Soli Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Where is God more glorified? Through the work of Christ on the cross Or in creating a million universes. The work of Christ on the cross. The centrality of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ. There can be no apology for having a conference. Focusing on in Christ alone. So this is a wonderful topic. That we get to talk on. There are going to be three keynote speakers. Who will be speaking on the three key benefits. That we receive in Christ alone. Justification. Sanctification and glorification. These are not the only benefits that we receive in union with Christ. We could talk about regeneration, effectual calling, adoption, the sealing of the Spirit, and we could keep you here all week, but we get to talk about the big three. So I'm going to be talking to you this morning about being justified in Christ alone. And I'd like to begin with an old, familiar question so that we can explore the old. And biblical answer. How can I as a sinner. Be righteous in the eyes. Of a holy God. How can I as a sinner be righteous in the eyes. Of a holy God. We're going to be answering that question. From Romans chapter 3. So please turn in your Bibles. To the book of Romans. And let me just set up for you. A bit of the, the flow of the thought. As we come to Romans chapter 3. Paul begins in Romans chapter 1 with an introduction. In verses 1 to 15, he greets the church. He talks about his desire to visit the church. And he says in verse 15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here is a man who is dying to preach the gospel all over the world. And so the question arises, Paul, why are you so excited about this gospel? And so you go on then to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
the heart of the gospel is all about the righteousness of God, the gift of the righteousness of God being received by anyone who believes. If you're a Jew, if you're a Greek, no matter who you are, you can know God's power to save you if you believe. And He will give you in the central part of the salvation what kicks it all off. The hinge upon which all religion turns is the fact that there is this gift of righteousness that is given to us in the gospel. And so this is Paul's opening to the letter to the Romans. And this raises a question. But Paul, why do we need a gift of righteousness? And that's where the first section of Romans really kicks off in 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20. And you could think of this portion as why we need the gospel. Think of this portion as the bad news. And here Paul tells us that we need the righteousness uh, from God because the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And so Paul sets out in that section in 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20 to establish that every single person born of Adam is a sinner. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter who you are, you are either, you're either under the law of stone or the law on your hearts. You have broken it and you stand condemned before God. And he brings this to a grand climax. So read with me 3 verse 19 and 20. Now we know... That whatever the law says, so remember law on stone for the Jews, law on the heart for the Gentiles. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth, that's Jew and Gentile, may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So let's just stop here. And let's just allow these thoughts to sink in as we prepare to think about this wonderful gift of righteousness from God. Every mouth silenced. Imagine it. God is on His throne. The whole of the human race is before Him. And no one is able to say, I am righteous. I deserve to be led into heaven. No one is able to blame anyone else for their sins. No one is able to uh, plead extenuating circumstances for their sins. No one is able to point a finger at God saying, it's your fault that I have sinned. All mouths will be silent. Every single mouth accountable. Just imagine that scene. Every member of the human race hanging their heads in shame. None able to look into God's holiness with confidence. No one able to justify themselves by their own goodness. It's a shocking and a terrible thought, isn't it? This is the bad news. You cannot perform one good deed that God will approve of. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. You cannot live the perfect life that God requires, being holy as He is holy. You cannot cleanse yourself of even one past sin by anything good that you do. You cannot save yourselves by your own goodness. By the law, whether it's the law on stone or the law in your hearts, as you try to work out what pleases God and try to do it, you can't. As one commentator put it, you may be a bad person and at the bottom of the deepest mine, or you may be a good person and standing on the highest mountaintop, but none of us can reach the stars. And so we all fall short of the glory of God, no matter who we are. That's the bad news. The end, let's pray. I'm joking. <laughs> it doesn't stop there, and that is the good news. And uh, here we have, and this is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, some of the, the, uh, some of the most important words in the Bible, but now, in verse 21, as we move from the bad news to the good news. But now, God does something. God gives to us what we cannot provide for ourselves. God provides the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. Our greatest need is righteousness. Paul is going to give us the good news on how God provides this righteousness for us. So we're going to dig in here in Romans 1 verse 21 to 24. We'll be looking at it under three headings. Looking at righteousness or given righteousness, receiving faith and free grace. I will not be able to deal with every aspect of this text. But we'll be uh, dealing with 
the most important aspects. Let's read verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And Paul goes on from there. I want to begin by getting the technical stuff out of the way, and then we can dig into mining what it means, this phrase, the righteousness of God. You'll notice in verse 21 and 22, we have the phrase, the righteousness of God. It appears twice. If you're using an NIV, you'll notice that it is interpreted as saying, the righteousness from God. And so this raises some questions for us with regards to interpretation. Which is it? Is it the righteousness of God, speaking of His own personal attribute of righteousness? Or is it a righteousness from God, speaking of a gift that He gives to us? There are some other options that we're not even going to consider just because they're wrong that the new perspective on Paul and others bring. These are the only two serious candidates that we need to consider. So which is it? Well, technically speaking, in the Greek, we have here what we call a genitive construction. It could be translated as of God, an objective genitive. But I'm going to argue that it is a genitive of source. It must be translated or interpreted. You know, translation is correct. When it says righteousness of God, that's how it should be translated. But how do we understand it? It is a genitive of source. It's referring to a gift of righteousness from God. So whether it's Romans 1 verse 17, Romans 2 verse 21, Romans 2 verse 22, these are all genitives of source. There are ten, ten times in, Roman, in Paul's writings he uses this phrase, the righteousness of God. Three times out of ten, it's referring to God's own attribute of righteousness. The three times are all found in Romans 3. Romans 3, 5, Romans 3, 25, and Romans 3, 26. So how do we know that as we understand this genitive here in the Greek, that the righteousness is speaking of a gift of righteousness that comes from God? We know by the, excuse my English, syntagmatic constraints. We know from the clues in the context. Every time you find the word faith in the context in relationship to the righteousness of God, you can know it is a genitive of source. And it's talking about a gift from God, which is received by faith. The clearest example of this is in Philippians 3 verse 9. Please turn there. Let me establish this and then we can move on. Paul, speaking of himself as a Pharisee in the bad old days, now talks about the wonderful righteousness that he has in Christ. And he says in Philippians 3 verse 9, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. And what we have in the Greek there is the preposition ek, from. So it's literally there in this context. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so here we have a very clear example of Paul interpreting this phrase, righteousness of God for us. In other words, extrapolating it, expanding it for us and helping us to understand it. So let's dig in then and I'm going to move over verse 21 and we're going to start in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, are you taking notes? You may want to take notes. If you're taking notes, write down these three phrases. Simul justus et peccator. And I will interpret that. It means uh, both simultaneously just and righteous. Okay, it's a phrase in the Latin. It comes from Martin Luther. You can write it down in Latin or English if you like. Both just and sinful. Second phrase I want you to write down is justified by the imputation of an alien righteousness. Justified by the imputation of an alien righteousness. Not alien as in E.T., alien as, uh, uh, in terms of the opposite of native. Okay? And the third phrase I want you to write down is active and passive obedience of Christ. These are three very important concepts that we're going to explore as we get to the heart of how we are made righteous before a holy God. 
I want to take you back in time to the time of Martin Luther. We all know him, the Roman Catholic monk who was trying to find peace with God. Martin Luther was a man seeking salvation in a climate where your good deeds ultimately counted for your justification. He had been taught that you needed to confess your sins in order to be justified. So he would literally spend up to six hours a day confessing his sins until his confessors told him to go away. They didn't want to hear about it anymore. He was encouraged to teach the Bible in order to find peace with God. And he was uh, given the task of teaching Romans and Galatians and Psalms. And it was during his studies that he wrestled with the concept of the righteousness of God from Romans. And so you'll remember Romans 1 verse 16 and 17 that we read earlier. This was the phrase that was the turning point for him. He couldn't get his head around what it meant, this phrase, the righteousness of God. Let me read those verses again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, Paul has said that the gospel, which means, what does gospel mean? Good news. Okay, so here's the good news. The good news is attached to this concept of the righteousness of God. And Luther couldn't understand it. Luther knew that the Ten Commandments, the law, condemned us as sinners. So the law of God was something that made you guilty, something that made you condemned. But isn't the righteousness of God his own personal attribute of righteousness? That which I have to stand before, that which he judges me by, that by which I am condemned? How can the righteousness of God be good news? How can the righteousness of God be gospel? And he struggled. And he actually he says that he, he came to hate this concept of the righteousness of God. Because it is the righteousness of God that says, you're a sinner and you deserve to go to hell. So How can the righteousness of God be good news? And he beat and he beat and he beat upon these verses. And then he wrote this. I began to understand. And as I read this, we're going to use the word justice and righteousness interchangeably. The reason the English language has the word justice and righteousness, which mean the same thing, is the French invaded England. And they brought Latin, which is the word justice. But the English root for the same word is righteousness. So if you're using the word righteousness, you're speaking Anglo-Saxon. If you're using the word justice, you're, you're referring to the Latin root. It means the same thing. So forgive me if I vacillate between these two words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written. The righteous person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a Passive justice. It's not his own personal attribute. In other words, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I exalted the sweetest word of mine, the righteousness of God which as much love as before, I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. He saw that the righteousness of God is not something that we attain to. It's, Paul is not talking about the attribute of, of righteousness in God, but a gift of righteousness from God. Let's nail down this concept of a gift of righteousness. Just one verse. Turn to Romans 5 verse 17. Paul is comparing Adam with Christ. Comparing Adam's disobedience to Christ's obedience. Comparing the imputation, the reckoning, the crediting of Adam's guilt. And the imputation, the crediting and reckoning of Christ's righteousness. When he says, Romans 5 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Can you see it? A gift of righteousness. Friends, we are guilty sinners before God's law. We have no righteousness of our own. We cannot produce a righteousness of our own. How then can we be righteous in the eyes of a holy God? God has to gift a righteousness to us. God Himself must supply what we cannot. And so He gives as a gift what we cannot earn. What do we mean by a gift of righteousness? Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's explore the mechanics of how this works. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to read that again. It's too important. For our sake He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Luther realized that God gives us a gift of righteousness so that we can be as holy as God in His sight. Christian, I ask you, are you as righteous as God? Your answer is yes and no. Nice and clear, hey? Yes and no. And this brings us to simul justus et peccator, both just and sinful, both righteous and sinful. Luther called this the great exchange. My sin, Christ's righteousness, and there's a double transaction. My sin is credited to Christ. Christ's righteousness is credited to me. This is called the marvelous or the great exchange. I was justified. He was condemned. Now, in order to understand the nature of how I become the righteousness of God, we must first look at how Jesus became sin. What does this phrase mean? God made him who knew no sin to become sin. How did Jesus become sin? Does Jesus become sinful in his nature? As uh, some charismatics believe that Jesus uh, adopted the nature of Satan at the point that he was dying on the cross? No, of course not. Jesus does not become sinful in his nature. He is the God-man. He is the spotless Lamb of God. He becomes sin not by a change in his nature, but rather by our sins being transferred or reckoned or imputed to his account. It is a case of imputation, not impartation. In the same way, when we are declared righteous, God transfers Christ's righteousness to us. Justification, which is this act of being declared righteous, is not a term we use to talk about a change in our nature, but a declaration conferring a new legal status upon us. We are literally, in a legal way, as holy as Christ. Jesus swapped his criminal record with us, not bodies. This great exchange is summed up in that phrase, simul justus et peccator. Now, you're a walking paradox. You're not, maybe you feel like a walking contradiction, but you're a walking paradox. You're both just and righteous. And here's my favorite illustration from Luther. There he was in the castle, translating German, hiding away to save his life. And he woke up the one morning and he looked out the castle window and he saw the peasants working the farms and he saw a big pile of dung ready to fertilize the fields. That night it snowed and when he looked out the morning, looked out the, the window the next morning, he saw a beautiful, pure, clean, white pile of snow. But he knew what was underneath the snow. And he said, that's a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, you are a pile of dung. Say it with me. I am dung. 
yet the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon you. You are both snow and dung. In ourselves, we are sinners. But in Christ, because His righteousness has been conferred upon us, we are as white as snow, we are as holy as Christ Himself in the eyes of God. So, you're a pile of dung with snow on top. What is Jesus? He's a pile of snow with dung on top. You see, Jesus was also simul justus et peccator, but in reverse. He was both righteous and sinful. You're both righteous and sinful. <laughs> but that's your legal state and your nature. He is both righteous nature, sinful legal state. Do you see the double imputation? This is the marvelous exchange. And in this way, we become righteous in the eyes of a holy God. So this drives us to consider a little bit uh, more deeply this word justification. Go back to Romans 3, verse 22 to 24, and follow the flow of thought there with me. We saw in verse 22 that this gift of righteousness from God is received through faith in Christ. Then verse 23 explains why it has to be received through faith, because everyone's a sinner and cannot be good enough to, to get their own righteousness by their good deeds and their obedience. And so if someone does believe, if someone does put their faith in Christ, verse 24 tells us what happens and are justified by His grace as a gift. And so it's that first word, justified, that we want to explore now. Firstly, in establishing the meaning of this word, we must understand what sort of word it is. What field of discourse does it belong to? Is this a medical term? An agricultural term? A domestic term relating to the home? No, this is a legal term. We also use the term forensic. It's got nothing to do with CSI. It just means legal. It is a legal term. So how important is it to, to be so pedantic and emphasize that justification is purely a legal term? Well, friends, in our English language, we have the word justification, and the history of this word is, un is very unfortunate. It comes from two Latin words which mean to make righteous. Justification technically means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. These are two very, very different concepts. In fact, it's the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. To declare righteous is a legal action of conferring a righteousness on you. To make righteous is to describe a process of transformation and change. And so these are two very different things. The lines were blurred between declaring a sinner righteous with no reference to change going on on the inside and making a sinner righteous through a process. And so the lines between justification and sanctification were blurred. And it was at the time of the Reformation that the purely legal nature of this word justification was brought into the limelight again. Having determined that justification is a legal, not a transformative word, we can then also see it as describing a status, not a state. When God looks at you and He says, I declare you righteous, what is He describing? The dung or the snow? The snow. He's describing the legal status that he has conferred upon you. He's not describing you who are still an imperfect, unglorified sinner in an imperfect state of sanctification. He's describing the righteousness that has been credited to you. Legally, you are righteous in the eyes of God, but in reality, you are still a sinner by nature. Think of it in terms of another legal reality. Imagine adoption. Imagine that there was a millionaire who had a son. His name is Jesus. And uh, Jesus had a will. His will said that when I die, uh, he has no children, he is not married. He would like everything that he owns to be equally distributed amongst his brothers and his sisters. And the father, the millionaire of uh, Jesus Christ, uh, the father of Jesus Christ comes along and he adopts you into Jesus' family. Now Jesus is your brother. And Jesus dies. And you have been written into his will. 
And you now receive everything that his will says is yours. Now, legally, you're part of the family, right? Do you need to transplant some, some bone marrow so you can have some of his DNA to have a legal entitlement to that inheritance? No. Do you need to get a blood transfusion so you can have some of Jesus' blood in you so that you'd be legally entitled to that inheritance? No. What about a, what about a face change to get the family resemblance going? No. Adoption is a legal thing. It's a legal status that's conferred upon you. In the same way, righteousness is a legal status that is conferred upon you. In this way, you are righteous. Now, since the word justification is a legal word that belongs to the law courts, we must not miss that this is a declaration made by who? Who's the judge who makes the declaration? It is God himself. He is the one who declares you righteous. It is his uh, declaration over you. Now, the significance of this is that when you put your faith in Christ and you are justified through this crediting, this reckoning, through this imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is transferred to your account, as it were, and God declares righteous over you, this is your judgment day verdict brought forward. This is your judgment day verdict brought forward. In other words, your eternal destiny and fate are already decided as a past event at the moment you are justified. If you are justified, you can know what God is going to say to you on the final day. Imagine it. Jesus comes again. We're all resurrected. We all stand before the judgment seat of, of, of Christ, but before the throne of God. Do you think you're going to be standing there wondering, I wonder what he's going to say. I wonder if I'm in or out. That was already determined the day you believed. Here's one way you can know it. Let's think about the series of events. Which happens first, the resurrection of the dead or the judgment? The resurrection comes before the judgment, right? What body will you be resurrected in? If you're a saint, you'll be resurrected in a glorified body. All you have to do is look down and you'll be shining. And you will know where you're going. Before the books are opened and your deeds are considered, it's already been determined. Justification is your judgment day verdict brought forward. And when God declares you righteous on that day, it is not a new sentence that he's speaking over you. It is a repeat sentence. It is something that has already been pronounced, now made open and plain. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the opposite of justification is condemnation. Condemnation is the guilty verdict that hangs over every sinner and which will be ratified on judgment day. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never hear these words. Depart from me, I never knew you. You'll never hear these words. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I'm doing a lot of explanation, so let me do a little application. The Puritans are considered the greatest pastors in the Christian church. And they were very careful to make sure that this truth was always properly applied. One of the greatest applications that the Puritans made was this one. Does the Christian feel full and immediate acceptance into the full love and embrace of the Father? Do you feel... The full love and embrace of the Father. This is, of course, one of our deepest problems, isn't it? With constant reminders of our sin and our daily failures. Constant reminders of the holiness of God, which we glory in, in the Word. We constantly feel inadequate and come cowering into the presence of God. We often come with the attitude of slaves and not sons and daughters. This attitude debilitates us during the week. We have no joy, no enthusiasm, no desire to burst and share the good news with anyone. We are inwardly tormented and our emotional energy is turned inward as we're constantly absorbed in morbid introspection. We endlessly trouble over something that Christ has already done. He has made me righteous. 
So we try and win acceptance by the amount of guilt that we heap upon ourselves, trying to wring out another tear, wring out another sensation of guilt. Let me, let me set you free. Christ has done it all. And when you come to the Father, He receives you as the prodigal son. And when you try and punish yourself for your sins by resigning yourself to a life of unrewarded servitude, He silences you with His kisses and His gifts and His embraces. I see Christians standing in the Father's embrace, resolute in their determination to be a slave instead of, instead of accepting all that Christ has done for them. If you're a believer, you have been justified. You are dressed in Christ's righteousness, and because of His goodness, you can approach the throne of grace with boldness. And when you pray, you pray in His name and know that your prayers are heard because of Christ. Now, will there be times of sorrow over your sin? There better be. But we sorrow with rejoicing. We sorrow with hope. We can face our sins and look into the eyes of our sins more deeply than anyone else because we know they've been paid for. Are you sorrowful yet rejoicing or are you just sorrowful? Are you under the weight of sins that you don't know are forgiven or do you know that every sin is paid for? We need to stop seeing ourselves as prisoners out on parole who with one more misdemeanor will be back on death row. Christ has done it all. We are the righteousness of God in Him. All my sins, past, present, and future, were taken by Christ and paid for in full. All of His righteousness is given to me. This is how God solves the problem of the guilt of my sin. Glorification will remove the presence of my sin. But justification deals with the guilt of my sin. Christ as my substitute is now my unchanging righteousness. And this is the source of my joy because my righteousness is not in myself or anything else. It is in Christ alone. You all know who John Bunyan is? He was a man who in his early days struggled with the fact that he had thought he had committed the unforgivable sin. Anyone here felt they may have committed the unforgivable sin? <laughs> if you're a Christian, you probably thought you've committed the unforgivable sin. And he was tormented by this. And then he wrote this down. One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, it's old English. I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there I say was my righteousness so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not save me that he lacks my righteousness for that was just before him. I also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better. Nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself the same yesterday, today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God about the unforgivable sin left off to trouble me no more. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Where is your righteousness? Is it in the dung or in the snow? It's in Christ. and He never changes. This righteousness of Christ is credited to me, but let's put it under the microscope. What is it made up of? And I'd like to bring the Heidelberg Catechism to you. Question, six, question 60. How art thou righteous before God? Answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, that is, although my conscience accused me that I grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any one of them perfectly and that I am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me 
the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. And amen. You, you probably remember as a child, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be justified? Just as if I had never sinned. That's how people are taught to remember it. That's not enough, is it? Just as if I had never sinned. Just as if I'd always obeyed. Just as if I was Jesus who had obeyed every single commandment of God on my behalf. I am justified by the life and death of Christ. By His active and His passive obedience. By His obedience and death, He paid all that the law demanded in payment for my sin. By His life, He provided all that the law requires for righteousness. And just as Adam's disobedience was imputed to me and I died, Christ's obedience is imputed to me and I live. Now, Romans 3, verse 22 to 24 answers three basic questions. There's a what, a how, and a why. Now, I'd just very quickly like to answer the how and why questions. So, what do we need to be righteous before a holy God? The answer we have seen, it is a gift of an alien, not my own and others, righteousness which comes from God. We move on now to the how. How do I obtain this righteousness? I've told you all about this marvelous gift, and here is the big question. Well, how do I get it? How do I ensure that that, that righteousness becomes my righteousness? Paul has made it very clear that we cannot obtain righteousness by our working for it, so it cannot be by works. Paul tells us that we receive the righteousness from God by faith. Look at verse 22 again. The righteousness of God through Faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. And verse 23 reminds us that it has to be by faith. For everyone has sinned and have automatically disqualified themselves. They cannot work for it. Therefore, they have to receive it by faith. So here is the question. What is faith? What is saving faith? And here's how I like to ask the question which helps us understand the nature of faith. What are you trusting in to make you righteous before a holy God? What are you trusting in? What are you leaning upon? What are you relying on? What are you resting in? What are you depending upon? What are you putting your confidence in? What do you believe will make you righteous? What do you have faith in for righteousness? That is what faith is talking about. The nature of faith, and here are two more words I want you to write down. Faith is extrospective, not introspective, and instrumental. And I don't mean guitars or pianos. We've all heard of introspection. Introspection is where you look inward at yourself. Trust is the opposite. It's looking outward. It is a look away from self to the Savior. The difference between faith and works is the difference between extrospection and introspection. The picture of the Israelites in the wilderness who have been bitten by snakes and they have to look at the bronze serpent. That external look, that extrospective look, the look away from self. They're not trying to make up their own little medicines. They're looking to, to, to the one that God provides to heal them. That is saving faith. Now, repentance, confession, conviction, penitence, tears, praying, restitution, all of these things accompany saving faith. But they must not be confused with saving faith. Faith is the empty hands we bring to God to receive the Savior. Faith is the begging bowl of the poor in spirit. And so in theology, we speak of faith as the instrumental means. And it's got nothing to do with musical instruments. All we mean it is a channel of reception. A good way to think of it is, is uh, an extension cord. When uh, my kids were younger, and by the way, I don't have teenage boys. Oh, I've got one teenage boy now, but uh, we're, we're empty nesters. Uh, I saw the bio is a bit old. <laughs> but uh, I used to vacuum the house on a Saturday morning, and I hated having to unplug and then replug and then unplug and then replug. 
So lazy me, laziness is the mother of invention. I got an extension cord. I plugged it into a central plug, and I could do the whole house in one go. Now, maybe you've already cracked that, and you don't think I'm much, much of a genius, but I was very proud of myself. But imagine I went around the house with my extension cord, trying to suck up dirt. What would happen? Zero. The power is not in the extension cord. The extension cord is the channel, the conduit for the power. That's what your faith is. Your faith receives the righteousness of another. Your faith is not a righteousness that you give to God. It is a channel with which you receive righteousness from God. It is no power of its own that it, that it contributes. It is the empty hand that we receive the gift of Christ's righteousness with. We do not add anything by trying to clean the hand, to having the hand manicured and tanned so it looks all nice and pretty. Come as you are. We merely receive with no intention of addition, trusting that what we receive is sufficient to make us righteous in God's sight. To view faith in any other way is to violate what Paul is trying to tell us about Abraham's faith in Romans 4. Abraham received a gift. He did not work for a wage. The grounds of our justification is not the quality of our faith, but the quality of Christ's righteousness which we receive by faith. What we receive is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. How we receive it is by faith. And here's our last question. Why does God give us this gift? What is the motive in God? Look down at verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Not because of merit. Not because of your goodness. Not because you have earned it but because of grace. So what then is grace? Typical definition would be God's unmerited favor, or maybe the acronym God's riches at Christ's expense. And these are good definitions. Grace is God's disposition to the unworthy sinner. But here is my favorite definition. Grace is demerited favor. D merited favor. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you're walking down the street and you see a beggar. And you feel sorry for this beggar. You've seen him there several times before. And you think, well, I've got to be responsible. I'd like to give him some money. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take him home, let him work in my garden, and then pay him $50. Is that grace or is that a wage? He worked for it. Now, maybe he didn't do a very good job and you were quite gracious in overpaying him. But he merited it, and it was a wage. That's not grace. He worked for it. The next week, you're walking down the street. You see the same man. You don't have time to take him home. You feel sorry for him, so you just pull out 50 bucks, and you say, here you go. That's unmerited favor. He did nothing to deserve it. The next week, you're walking down the street, and he knows you've got money in your wallet, and he's not happy with the 50 bucks. You're walking down the street with your son. Your son's holding your hand. And he pulls out a knife and he stabs your son and murders him. Stabs you and you're left in the hospital for three months. A week later, you're walking down the street and you see this man. And you put your hand in your wallet and you pull out $50 and you give it to him. That's demerited demerited favor. This is what God has done for us. Works is giving you what you have earned. Unmerited favor is giving to you when you have not earned it, but grace is giving to you the opposite of what you have earned, condemnation and judgment. As sinners, we deserve God's punishment, but instead He gives us His best. God did not give you the things that you do deserve, but more He gives you eternal life, eternal riches, eternal joy, eternal peace. So imagine you are that beggar on the street. And God is walking down the street and you have murdered his son. What does he give you? What does he do for you? He pulls you up by the hand, takes you into his embrace. He washes you. He makes you clean. 
He takes you home. He adopts you. He writes you into his will. And he makes everything that is his yours. Unmerited favor. God loved us while we were still his enemies. And he provides this amazing gift of righteousness because of his goodness, not because of ours. Now, friends, I've tried to squeeze a lot into the sermon. So let's conclude. How is a sinner righteous in the eyes of a holy God? God, in his grace, provides in Christ a righteousness that we cannot produce. And we receive the imputation of this alien righteousness through the extrospective act of trusting faith. We come to God to receive a righteousness not our own, but that which is produced by the life and death of Christ. And when we receive it by faith, God pronounces the verdict, our judgment day verdict over us. Not merely not guilty, but righteous. Or more simply, we are justified by the righteousness that God provides in Christ alone which is received by faith alone, which is provided by grace alone. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we stand amazed at our own unworthiness and the deep, immeasurable wells of your grace. And Lord, the profound gift of an alien righteousness, that which had to be provided for by Christ, that we could become your children. Father, we thank you that we've been able to stop and to answer this basic question. How is a sinner made righteous in the eyes of a holy God? And in answering it, Lord, we are brought to our knees. We are humbled. Lord, we stand amazed at your goodness. Father, we pray that as we continue on considering these thoughts, considering what you have done for us, may you receive all the praise and all the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.